This episode of the Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by SR3 Rescue Concepts because you don't know what you don't know. Life Saving Systems Corporation, we do our work so you can do yours. Tough gear for tough jobs. Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated hoist and winch provider. And Hilo Vodka, simply better vodka. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help you with your helicopter training, a standardization and safety check, or maybe just an audit or an FAA refresher. They're ready to bring your agency up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. The training staff is amazing! With certified and flight instructor pilots, experienced crew members, which I'm happy to say that I get to be one of them, they offer training in rescue, medical, tactical, firefighting, ground operations, and night vision goggle use. SR3 has partnered with Petzl to assist with the PPE inspection course and the highly specific Lazard, which is used in helicopter cliff and mountain rescues. SR3 goes above and beyond the helicopter world too. They also provide high angle rescue training and tactical medicine training. Contact them today at sr3rescueconcepts.com that's sr3rescueconcepts.com and follow them on Instagram at sr3 underscore rescue that's sr3 underscore rescue we're also brought to you by Life Saving System Corporation they manufacture the world's toughest helicopter rescue gear from my favorite harness as a rescueman the Triton to the rescue baskets and litters, and of course, the most popular hoist hook in helicopters, the D-Lock. The team at LSC cuts, bends, welds, sews, and machines these products into existence every day and then sends them on their way to us. We do our work so you can do yours. LSC, tough gear for tough jobs. Check them out today at lifesavingsystems.com. That's lifesavingsystems.com. And follow them on Instagram at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. That's at R-E-S-Q-G-E-A-R. We're also brought to you by Breeze Eastern. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those who get rescued has not. Contact Breeze Eastern today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. That's breeze-eastern.com. And we are brought to you by Hilo Vodka. Hilo Vodka is a premium craft vodka made from the highest quality ingredients and six times distilled. Hilo Vodka was made to be crisp, refreshing, and unintrusive. It's exactly how vodka should be made, clean enough to drink neat and worthy to be mixed with your favorite cocktails. They make a crisp, refreshing vodka that is carefully carbon filtered for a smooth sip and no bite. Hilo Vodka is 100% American made. It is proudly veteran-owned by a former search and rescue pilot. Simply Better Vodka. Order yours today by visiting shophelovodka.com. That's shophelovodka.com. FedEx delivery is available in most states. Use the promo code CAPITALS, R-E-S-Q, 
and you get 10% off your order. Plus, if you buy three bottles or more, it's free shipping. Please remember to drink responsibly, and FAA Part 91 says eight hours, bottle the throttle. Our next guest is a super close personal friend of mine. The guy is absolutely amazing. He's an amazing pilot, an amazing leader. I've been able to take such great advice from him, even by watching him work and what he does and what he brings to the table. It's it's just awesome, and I, I love every bit of it. I have brought it to my own work, try to mimic a lot of things that, that he would do, uh, and it's just good advice. When him and I were working together in the Gulf of Mexico, it just so happened that Vertical Magazine came down and did a full article on everything that all of our crews were doing down there in the Gulf. So that was kind of a fun thing with him and I and the rest of the crews down there because we did like photo shoots and Dan Magna, shout out to that guy. You know, we had just a great relationship and it was so fun to do that whole thing. So Without further ado, one of my best friends in this industry, Mr. Eugene Reynolds. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Real Rescue Podcast. Today, yes, my friend, my brother, a killer pilot, somebody that I've learned a lot in life from, and whether he likes to admit it or not, I really have, Mr. Gene Reynolds. What's up, Jay? <laughs> Jason, good to see you, buddy. It's nice to be here, man. Dude, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. So um, we have a, a lot to talk about, and, and this is going to be... I'm, I'm totally stoked about this, but to give everybody a little bit of a background, you and I met down in uh, the Gulf of Mexico. We were working in Louisiana and Texas together. Um, we had little patches made. It said, uh, <laughs> foo, no, something about foo. <laughs> Sorry, one, foo, the foo. <laughs> no, we had, uh, we had uh, SAR1, Club Foo. Club Foo, yeah. And then we, and then the other base was in Galveston, so we had SAR two, not, not foo. <laughs> <laughs> I still have those patches. Oh, so do I. Love it. That's yeah, awesome. Um, so, Gene, for everybody else that doesn't know you, please introduce yourself. All right. Thanks, Jason. Um, my name is Gene Reynolds. Um, let's see. I'm a mediocre individual. Uh, <laughs> Well, like, uh, if you, you want me to go like all the way back, or give me like a whatever you want, my friend. Hey, so, this podcast so, is yours. Yeah, man. <laughs> so currently, I'm working as assistant chief pilot for Life Flight Network uh, here in the Pacific Northwest. I manage uh, four uh, single pilot IFR bases uh, for uh, air ambulance company. Um, and um, I manage the pilots and the aircraft at those locations. My uh, aviation history goes pretty far back, a little over two decades. And like Jason said, we met uh, probably 2011 in yeah. the Gulf of Mexico. And so that's kind of how, uh, how we met. And I'm sure that we'll get into a little bit uh, of that. some of those, some of, those <laughs> yeah, some of that over the next few minutes. So. I, I won't throw you under the bus too bad. If you don't throw me under the bus too bad, please. <laughs> Fair. 
You know, yeah. we had some we had some good. Do not talk about New Orleans. I don't know what you're talking about. That did not. No, and, and nothing happened in Houston either. It's <laughs> oh, a good time. My, my wife is standing right here. She's like, "What are you guys talking about? Nothing, honey." Awesome. Hi, Mel. Jean says hello. Hi, Jean. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, all right, so. Thank you for giving me a little bit of background. So what uh, what brought you into search and rescue? Let me start with that. Uh, so good question. And um, I've been thinking about that a little bit. Uh, so my flying career started uh, well before I joined the Army. And I knew I wanted to fly. Um, it has nothing to do with search and rescue. But uh, I started flying back in the late 90s. And then I joined the Army. Uh, and I flew helicopters for the Army. Well, uh, most of the... Um, world or the industry knows that the army doesn't do search and rescue right. uh if you will uh they uh they aren't really in that role however they do some of that okay uh but only on in, in a unique uh situation uh well my army career took me through a lot of different um uh, paths and opportunities. And I had the opportunity to work with the Army uh, Special Operations Aviation Regiment. And I did that for uh, nearly a decade. And I would say that that was my first exposure to real search and rescue. Um, we didn't do traditional search and rescue like the Coast Guard, per se, or uh, other uh, traditional search and rescue units. Uh, but we did uh, do uh, some similar work. Uh, to include um, hostage rescue and uh, very important um, operations that involved, um, you know, similar search and rescue techniques. My first uh, few years in the Army, I was with what some might call regular Army, you know, the Green Army. Uh, and we didn't really do, you know, it wasn't in our um, task list. It, we weren't trained on search and rescue or anything. Uh, but when I went to special operations, um, it was definitely uh, an idea that uh, we kind of carried around with us. And, and we knew that uh, we were pretty much trained and capable of doing whatever uh, type of operation with a helicopter uh, that the customer might ask for. Uh, and that included some search and rescue, or that included some special rescue, if you will. Yeah. Um, not a whole lot of search because um, fortunately uh, at that level, um, there's not a whole lot of searching going on because yeah. everyone knows where all the players might be. Um, <laughs> Which is however, good and bad, depending on how you're yeah. going into it. So, However, um, they're, uh, probably my introduction to search and rescue um, was an event that, um, or a series of events that happened in Afghanistan. And um, I, I won't discredit the word search because we kind of um, flew around the countryside and uh, looked for a particular individual that um, we didn't exactly know where they were. Yep. And uh, we were uh, flying a, a particular customer that was, um, well, let me back up. We were probably the premier aviation force in uh, Afghanistan at the time. So we were not only working for U.S. military, but we were working for other uh, military as well to include uh, Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom. And so nice. um, not because their aviation assets weren't capable, uh, but 
maybe because they didn't either have enough or they weren't on site or they, uh, whatever the case may be. But in this case, we were employed uh, by a customer that was not um, the U.S. And uh, they said, hey, we need some help uh, finding and uh, recovering a particular individual. And so, of course, we were there ready to go. So uh, the information that we had uh, sent us on uh, some particular um, uh, flights. And, and one night we went um, uh, with our customer on board the aircraft looking for this particular individual. And uh, we, didn't, uh, uh, we weren't so lucky. Uh, and so we re- kind of regrouped and um, uh, kind of went back into our uh, planning uh, phase and say, hey, what's going on? Why, why can't we find this individual? And some new information uh, came out. I said, oh, okay, now we're certain that, uh, you know, this person is, is located here. And I remember uh, being a part of that team. And uh, I'm like, this is pretty special uh, because not only have we been uh, specifically requested uh, by uh, by a by a different country to fly their um, uh, their special operators, their tip of the spear, if yeah. you would, uh, and so we knew that we uh, were onto something pretty uh, significant. And they said, "Hey, here's where we want to go. Here's what we want to do, but we have to get permission to do it first. And I remember being in a room with um, uh, some key people um, and uh, some of our leadership uh, was on the phone with some pretty key leadership from uh, another country, like red phone to red phone kind of stuff. You know, I don't, <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. But yeah, it was, cut, pick up the bat phone. You know, we need permission to execute this operation. And it was, um, it was pretty significant because I remember standing there like, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, I'm standing next to a guy who's on the phone with, um, one of the top leaders of a pretty important country um, in the U.S. or or in the world. And uh, I was like, this is pretty significant. And I've got a pretty big responsibility as the aircraft commander for my particular helicopter. And so once we got approval (laughs) to do that, you know, the phone gets slammed down like a a typical like phone would get slammed down. And they said, we're a go. And so we kind of moved to the helicopters and we all had our like we literally wrote out our plan on a napkin. Um, The flight lead said, this is where we're going. This is where you're going. He told me this is where you're landing um, and this is what you're doing. And so uh, we went to the aircraft. We left. We departed. We flew to the location. And uh, it was quite an exciting night. Um, I don't know if they were celebrating their country's independence, but there was a lot of fireworks in the sky. Uh, <laughs> Those fireworks and, might have been like going by you. And just, yeah. <laughs> and so you're there was like, a lot of that. What the? Oh, my gosh. And we, you know, we did our job. We kind of landed and in, in, insert, you know, the helicopter is not really the tip of the spear, but we carry the customer that really is. Yep. And so they, we landed, we inserted them and did, they did their job. And um, all while the, fireworks know, are going off all around oh, you. Yeah, it was quite exciting. Uh, and then we came right back in and um, they had the individual they were looking for. And uh, we picked them up and we flew out of there still, you know, with the independence celebration going on. Uh, and it was, it was really quite exciting. And, uh, probably the, one of the things I remember about that night was, 
we have all these kind of like checklists and we have this equipment on our aircraft and we have forward looking infrared and we have all these cameras and things. And we are able to record that kind of stuff on, um, on uh, tape. And part of our checklist is to set the recorder to record while we're inbound to the scene, right? And so I followed the checklist because, you know, I'm, I'm a good pilot and I follow my checklist. And I turn my recorder on and then we fly through the whole thing and it gets exciting. And then at the end, afterwards, we do a post, um, like a post action checklist. And I, yep. I turn my recorder off and... Um, we land at the end of the night and everyone's high-fiving and, oh, great job, everyone. Good job. Pat's on the back. Yeah, there. And um, I said, well, did anyone else record it? And everyone else forgot to turn their recorders on. <laughs> I was the only one who turned on the VCR or the, the you know recorder for the camera. <laughs> so my tape got confiscated pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, taken for debriefing and evaluation and all that kind of stuff. And I, I wish to this day that I still had a copy of that tape because it was pretty, um, I thought it was pretty epic, you know, <laughs> but, uh, so no, I don't have a copy of that, unfortunately, but I was the only one to record and, and to, to kind of document for posterity, uh, some of the events of that night. That's hilarious. Yeah. You know, so that was I my first. Um, that was my first real, like, uh, the rescue part of search and rescue. Uh, we didn't really have to search much, uh, yeah. but the rescue was quite, um, uh, quite exciting. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I remember from this story is uh, while the fireworks were going on around you, you were so excited. You were giving fireworks back. Like, hey. <laughs> Dude. Uh, so I, I give a lot of credit, right. And, and I'm going to talk about this later in, in our episode here, but, um, you, you know, the, the entire crew is critical to the success of the operation. There's not one single person on the aircraft or even on the ground for that matter, that is not, um, uh, significant or critical to the success of the operation. And, uh, yeah, we had, uh, guns on the aircraft that were manned by really, uh, skilled operators yeah. and um you know we decided to um throw some fireworks of our own and we had to <laughs> and i remember uh after we did the first infiltrate like when we first landed we offloaded our door kickers as you yeah. might call them and uh, our guns were just to go in and they're doing their thing and they're shooting and shooting and we take off um, and we're kind of like just had departed and my gunners uh tell me they're like Oh my gosh, sir. Hey, uh, we're Winchester right now. Like they literally just unloaded like a, a number of rounds with a comma in it. Um, and uh, I was like, what? Well, right about that time, we got called back for an emergency exfil. Uh, our particular helicopter had um, the um, like the medical emergency medical team on board. So if anyone got injured uh, during the operation, we were the particular ones that needed to go back in and help. And so we immediately got called saying, hey, someone's been injured. We need you to come back in. So we literally um, almost did a, a U-turn and went right back to the objective. Uh, but my crew member said, hey, we need to reload. We have just expended all of our ammo. So they're in the process of reloading. Uh, and I'm like, well, uh, okay, well, so now we've got to make sure we reload and before we can go back in. And that was, um, 
that was pretty exciting because when they told me they were out of ammo, I'm like, wait a minute, I saw how much ammo you guys loaded onto the aircraft. <laughs> and so for you guys to tell me that you're out of ammo right now is, I can't believe you just threw that much lead down range. Um, and so that was pretty interesting uh, experience for sure. Jeez, God, you know what? Hearing that story again, just, oh, I love it. That, yeah. Well done. Yeah, and, and I agree with you, like the whole, the whole crew, it, it does take a, an entire crew to get that done. I'm just a driver, man. I'm telling you, I'm just a driver. Get, shooting fireworks out the uh, out the little window. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, I love it. Oh man. All right. Well, I, you know, and with your your trip to Afghanistan, you actually did. Um, you know, if you don't, you don't even have to throw this bone to you because I'm going to do it. But you got a, a couple at least one distinguished flying cross out of that five air medals that I know of Gene. I mean, you came out of there with some missions that were like, wow. So uh, enough to get, and, and like, I don't want to, I don't want to put like, Oh, you did an award and you got an award for a case, but for guys to be put in for an award, there was something significant behind that in particular mission flight, whatever. And it's, it, it's funny you mentioned that, and I appreciate that. And, and I will tell you that I did have the, um, I had the honor of serving with some pretty impressive people. Uh, I'm not sure how I slipped through the cracks to make it to that location or that job, uh, but I did. And I was able to serve with some pr really impressive people uh, and really just served in the company of heroes uh, for that, for that matter. Um, but um uh, yeah, for, you know, I, I know why I got my awards and I know why I was nominated for them. And that's cool. Help me, helps me sleep well at night. It's no big deal. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, one mission in particular, uh, we were working for a particular country and we were flying their special operators. And at the end of that operation, everyone, again, was patting each other on the back going, great job, great job. You guys are awesome. And even the uh, this country uh, their customer was like, man, you guys are the best. You guys are awesome. We will hire you any day. And so the, the, like the awards conversation started floating around and I said, you know, I don't really want an award. You know what I want? I want to be knighted. I want to be knighted by the queen. Um, and if you guys can make that happen, that would be really cool. Um, uh, because I mean, like, if Elton John can write a song and get knighted, yeah, exactly. or if, um, you, you know, if somebody can summon Paul McCartney, Everest yeah, and get yeah. knighted, you know, I'm like, <laughs> I think like what we did just recently, maybe that constitutes a knighting, um, but it didn't happen. It really didn't. And that's nobody okay. laughed and everyone's like, nope, I don't think that's going to happen. So here's your stinking award. <laughs> and so that was that. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? That's awesome. The fact that you know, even even to bring that up, I I can I get knighted? I mean, it was yeah. I, I thought I'm like you know, if I could just add sir to the, my name or esquire, whatever. I don't know. I don't, I don't even know what like title you get when you get knighted. But I was like, maybe if I could just be called sir for the rest of my life without actually having a job where people have to call me sir. You know, it's like maybe I could put that in my signature uh -huh. block. <laughs> You know, we, you and I have spent so much time together uh, that that makes it even funnier for me with everything. So yeah. just 
I, you know, a side story is that Gene and I were together and we're kicking back a couple of brews. And next thing I know, he's telling somebody down at the end of the bar that I swim with Michael Phelps and I'm his sparring swimmer. And, and uh, I'm like, what? And all all oh, you do is just lean over and be like, go with it. <laughs> I remember that. That was amazing. That oh. was so much fun man we went back like four weeks later and they're like hey you're the guy that swims with michael phelps and i'm like oh god no i'm not but all right <laughs> michael <laughs> dude, phelps you, that's all you do <laughs> i set you up for success man oh, that was man. epic <laughs> oh my gosh so yeah i was like fact- michael phelps needs like a sparring partner he needs yeah. a, someone to train with and this guy he doesn't like get to stand on the metal stand. He doesn't go to the Olympics, but this is Michael Phelps, sparring partner. And they ate that up. Totally did. It was so, <laughs> we were so full of shit. It was hilarious. <laughs> so now to backtrack to that story, the fact that you were asking for a knighting, not surprising to me. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, cool, freaking beautiful. Oh my gosh. All right. So, let me, uh, unless you want to touch on anything else that you did in the army, I- I'm happy to move forward to where you and I kind of met and started. Yeah, working man. Together. Absolutely. Absolutely. The army was, you know, meh, the details of my army life are inconsequential. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, it got you here. It got you to where you're at. So it, absolutely. it's a journey. It's, it's a journey. A, it is indeed. And, uh, you know, like I, I look at it like, like the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard was my foundation. You know, I, yep. I didn't. I didn't end with the Coast Guard. I'm still doing the job. I'm, I mean, you're still flying. It's yep. it's just that it's a great foundation to where we get started to build the opportunities that got presented in front of us. And it's, yeah. it's been an amazing ride. So I yeah. love every bit of it. But um, so, so, yeah. so, yeah. So let's talk about where we got to the point where we met. Okay. Right? Yeah. So let me throw in a quick little uh, anecdotal um SAR story, if you will. Yes. Uh, when I separated from the army, I took about 10 months off uh, before I went back to work. And I lived aboard a sailboat in Washington State. And I ended up taking that sailboat offshore and uh, sailing it down to uh, Central America. And um, I'd never been, excuse me, on the, uh, the, the ground portion, if you will, of a search and rescue event. But Anyway, we were about 100 miles offshore, the coast of Northern California, and it was nighttime and the weather was not very pleasant. And I've got the radar and radio going and I'm just doing my thing, trying to keep the boat upright. And uh, I hear a mayday call come across the radio. Well, I don't actually hear the mayday call, but I hear the Coast Guard out of Humboldt Bay respond. And they responded to a mayday call. So I only hear the Coast Guard's portion of the call uh, because they've got, you know, high power transmitters and everything. And so they're talking to some other boat that's offshore that night. And they're using words like abandoning ship and rescue. And do you are you requesting assistance? And I'm in my own little world. I'm in my own little boat. I'm a hundred miles offshore, just plowing along in big waves and I'm getting wet and the wind's blowing and the sails are reefed down. And I'm kind of nervous about my own little world, but I'm doing okay. And I hear this uh, conversation from the Coast Guard and I'm like, man, this guy's in trouble. Like, this is not good. I'm glad that this is not me. Um, So I'm just listening to the radio. And the Coast Guard's really doing a great job. They're talking to this guy, they're, but I can only hear their side of the conversation, right? And apparently he gives them 
his location. And so they repeat um, the location over the radio, the lat long. So I, I'm like, yeah, let me just go do the, you know, correct thing. Let me pull my chart out. Let me plot yeah. this location. And so I plot this guy's location on my chart. And sure enough, it's like six miles dead ahead of my course line. <laughs> oh, and no I'm like, wait, maybe I, I'm sure I did something wrong. I'm not a very good sailor. So let me replot this, you know, <laughs> and I plot this thing. And I'm like, holy mackerel, this guy is no kidding, like six miles dead ahead. Like and my dead reckoning plot, like puts us right through his location. Okay. And so I'm like, hmm, I kind of have an obligation to help, right? Like, it's like the rule of the sea. It's like, yeah. you know, I'm in good health. I mean, my boat's in good shape. Who knows? Maybe I'll get to this location before the Coast Guard will, because we're 100 miles offshore. You know, that's whatever, a 40-minute flight, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so I pick my radio up. I call the Coast Guard. And I, you know, tell them who I was. And I said, hey, I'm listening to your conversation. And I hear that you're talking with a mariner in distress. And I happen to be at this location and he's about six miles ahead of me. And they were like, Oh, cool. Well, if you see him, let us know, you know, like, and so I'm like, okay. So I just keep plowing along. We're, I don't know how, what our speed is, maybe six knots, you know, so I'm, I'm still an hour or so away from this guy. Yeah. But throughout the, the next hour, I hear them um, initiate a helicopter rescue and the helicopter came out and they rescued this guy off the boat. They hoist like the, the, the stories that you talk about in your other podcasts. They come out, they hoist this guy in the middle of the night. They pluck him off of his boat. He was a solo sailor um, and the swimmer got deployed. Like everything was really I didn't know much about that work, but I'm listening to it on the radio. And it was really fantastic. And uh, they they get him off his boat and they leave. And that's cool. I'm like, great. This dude's got rescued. But then I'm thinking, I'm like, wait a minute. They left this boat just floating out here in the ocean. Uh-huh. Um, and it's dark. <laughs> I don't want to hit this thing, right? So, I mean, it's a big ocean, little boats, you know. But I call the Coast Guard. And I was like, hey, um, did, you guys rescue, did you guys rescue that guy? And they're like, yeah, we rescued him off the boat. It was great. You know, I said, cool. Did you guys scuttle the boat? Uh, no. I said, did you leave any lights on? <laughs> Uh, no, <laughs> I was like, so now there's like this floating hazard out here in the middle of the ocean that is on my course line. And they're like, yeah, sorry about that. Um, so now for the next like half hour, I'm like diligently monitoring the radar. I'm like, like looking out with my binoculars. I'm like, it's the middle of the night. I'm trying to like see any, any light, you know, hundred miles off the coast of Northern California. There's nothing out there. Right. Yeah. And so I'm like, I hope I don't just plow through this guy's sailboat right now. Um, but, uh, and so, you know, two or three hours later, we're well South of that position. So I knew it wasn't a, a factor, but it was enough to keep me awake and keep me on my charts and on the radio and on the, you know, I was like, Oh my gosh, what a great rescue story. But I don't want to become a second victim by slamming into this guy's sailboat that they just left floating out here in the ocean. <laughs> so you know that that actually brings up a really good point, which you know we don't think about very often as far as swimmers. You know, you go in, you yeah. or even rescue men in general. You go down, you're like, okay, I got you. Leave. Hey, help somebody out. You ask the guy before you leave. Hey, how do we turn all the lights on on the boat? As yeah. long as it's not sinking, turn everything on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything right. Um, and so it was, uh, it was an interesting night, but it gave me an appreciation one for what they do. Right. Uh, I, I think they came out of Humboldt Bay. I think that was who we were talking to. Um, 
probably. And I think that's California. Maybe yep. is that Northern California? Yeah. Correct. And so it was. Uh, it was really kind of cool. So it made me think and give a really new appreciation to like that. Um, like you guys fly all the way out here, pull it one guy off of his sailboat and then take him back um, to where he's safe, you yeah. know, because he had lost his rudder. He had no steering. Um, and so he was in a pretty bad way and we were in really heavy weather. So I can only imagine him and his smaller boat with no rudder. Like, so he was pretty in pretty bad shape. So uh, that was really cool. So it gave me an appreciation for that whole operation, uh, but it definitely kept me awake for like the next hour while we were offshore. <laughs> I love it. Matt, that's good. I, I I need to find out who that was now. I'm gonna I'm gonna start reaching out and be like, yeah, who's the guy? Who's the guy? Yeah, well, I mean, I, if if afterwards I can probably figure out what date it was because I have it in the logs, but I I can send you what you know that what that SAR case probably was. Man, that's um, pretty good. I like that. And so so then that late leads me to uh, where we met, right? So yep. you know, fast forward about four or five months, and I'm living in Mexico on my sailboat. And I'm like, you know, I probably need to go back to work. I like flying. Uh, and so I start throwing out applications like, hey, here I am, a pilot. Uh, <clears throat> and a company in the Gulf of Mexico hires me. And they say, hey, uh, we want to hire you. So I go to work in the Gulf of Mexico, right? And I get on board there and they're like, we're going to train you to fly this little tiny helicopter to fly uh, people offshore during the daytime. I'm like, cool, man, whatever. This is awesome. And so I start flying uh, offshore oil and gas. And um, about two weeks later, uh, the chief pilot for the company um, sends me a message and says, hey, I was looking at your resume. Um, would you be interested in joining our search and rescue team? And I said, oh, you guys have one of those. That's kind of cool. I didn't know that commercial companies did that. And so I was introduced to the SAR program there at that uh, particular company. And uh, I'm like, wow, this is cool. Um, yeah, at the yeah. time, um, uh, we had you guys uh, in the back of the aircraft and the front of the aircraft was, you know, I don't I don't want to use the word immature because they were very experienced aviators, but they weren't uh, necessarily experienced in the work we were trying to do. Agreed. Yep. So I was I was able to contribute a little bit of experience and, and knowledge to that. And so we started working and training together and doing commercial offshore search and rescue in the gulf of mexico and i, I love how you're kind of like bringing in as like humble as you are you came in like captain america just throwing that out there my friend <laughs> oh my <God. laughs> no, way. no way dude no way I, shield uh, in one arm <laughs> i wasn't like that but that's no, where our, our path. You no, no, no. I, that, it's, that's, that's just a good little joke right there. That's <laughs> cool. That's cool. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I had a little bit of experience, had a lot of MVG experience, had some offshore experience, some crude aircraft experience, and I was able to contribute uh, a little bit of that um, to the success of that program to help mitigate the risk and then kind of build that uh, program. Uh, to what it became and that's where we crossed paths and we first met and you, you, you might ask me oh do you remember your first SAR case well I kind of already talked about my first one in the army um, but my first SAR case in the Gulf was probably super lame yeah. uh, we did more medevac than anything and so it was yeah. probably some um, it was probably some daytime flight out to the shellers or some big platform where it's yeah. got a huge landing zone and you land and you pick some dude up and you take him to the hospital. So it's yeah. not that exciting. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, throughout the next uh, three years or so, we really uh, did some pretty amazing things. Uh, and we had a great time together and the camaraderie and um, the skill level that we brought uh, the crews up to uh, the work we did 24 hours a day, dark nights, deep water Gulf of Mexico. I mean, yeah. 200 and plus miles offshore. Um, and, uh, and we're doing some really, really great stuff. Uh, and, and there's a few, you know, events that uh, we've experienced <laughs> together during those yes, three years. Yes, there so was. Yeah. Pretty significant. Yeah. So. You, you can talk about anything you want, my friend. <laughs> I, I'll admit and or decline. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so the first one, the first one I'll bring up okay. is, and, and this is for the listeners, right? So if, if, yeah. if you're in uh, a, a technical role or if you're in any type of first responder job or, or search and rescue job, uh, the, your equipment checks, your rig checks, your checklists, your procedures, all that stuff is super important. It's really important because um, the littlest mistake can have a, a pretty big impact. And I remember we were flying one night, uh, we had gone offshore, what day I think it was, it doesn't really matter, but we had gone and picked up a patient from a, from a platform. Yep. And you, Jason, were um, the rescue swimmer on the aircraft. I don't remember the rest of the crew, but so I think Lane up. Abshire was with us, uh, yeah. who was who was just a couple uh, episodes ago, and then yeah, Miss I, Lane, yeah. I believe it uh, it might have been actually Joe Martin as the hoist operator. So yeah, we maybe. we had a, we had a good crew. So oh, and every crew we had there was good. I can't yeah. even uh, begin to to talk about it. But we uh, picked up this patient. And in the Augusta 139, you know, the med bed lays the thwart ships, right? So it's um, kind of left and right. It's not fore and aft like some air evac aircraft. And so we've got this patient on the med bed and every, before takeoff checks are completed and then we take off from the rig and we do our, our departure and we're kind of uh, on, on our acceleration and our climb out. And I hear this loud bang and, a, and, and a, just a rush of air. And uh, instinctually, I kind of knew that one of the sliding doors had come open. Yeah. And immediately I was like, oh, my gosh, this could be really bad because we're like doing 70 knots right now. And um, uh, the door is quite substantial on a 139. And if that thing just slid open without anybody kind of riding it back, yeah. then we could have like just broken it or lost the door. And I was concerned that the door may have gone in the tail rotor. And so immediately I kind of reacted on the flight controls and I said, oh my gosh, what was that? Is that, do we still have the door on the aircraft? And um, somebody said, yeah, the door's still attached. So I knew we didn't, it didn't leave the aircraft. It hadn't right. damaged, you know, the empennage or the tail rotor. So at least we we're still flying. And I said, well, this is not good. And, and, and the patient's head is just now looking at ocean yeah, and yeah. sky. And um, <laughs> so I'm like, well, we probably need to land and evaluate yeah. this to, to, to determine if we can still fly. So we landed uh, and through that whole conversation, um, you, you, you know, I give you credit, right? Because um, I, one of the things I've learned in my career is that if you can't admit your mistakes or if you can't learn, like share them with the crew or the group, you're never going to go anywhere whatsoever. And I'm thinking the whole time, I'm like, oh my gosh, we had a door failure. Like what happened? Like, did we have an equipment failure? Do we have a, a, an aircraft malfunction? And you, you totally rogered up and you said, Hey, I, I got up and moved and my gear caught the door handle yeah. and, and it opened the door. And well, from that, I said, dude, you know what? That's not the easiest thing to admit, but you do it. And so now immediately you start like figuring out, Hey, what can we learn from this? How do we, do we change our checklist? Do we change our best practices? Do we change our, 
you know, let me tell the pilot I'm going to get up. Let me remove my seatbelt and all this kind of stuff. And it really turned into something really good yeah. um, in that regard, because I've flown with people that will not admit their mistakes. Uh, and so from that incident or from that incident, uh, I have uh, tried to always admit my mistake or, hey, I didn't do something I probably could have done better. And I, I'll tell my crews that or my pilots or my employees that, hey, look, I'm not perfect. And here's how we can learn from it. So that was a pretty good story that ended up well we didn't damage anything i mean we damaged the door a little bit but it got fixed but we didn't it wasn't catastrophic uh, but we were able to debrief it we were able to talk about it and we were able to learn from it and i think that was a pretty good um experience for everyone involved you know <laughs> well maybe thanks thanks uh so now I, i'll tell you what i will tell you from my aspect and see that we're talking about this one particular is um we had we had loaded the patient up on the back and at that time um, if you can picture the back of the 139, uh, let's see, I was sitting in the back right seat as the swimmer, the paramedic was sitting in the back left and the hoist operator is in the forward right side facing aft in the back of the helicopter. Well, in this in particular patient, I had then moved uh, like on to diagonal to the other seat. So now I'm the sitting forward uh, left side facing, facing aft. aft. Yep. And, now, and the reason behind that at the time is that I was helping lane with the airway and making sure that the patient was secured and, and you know, helping monitor and IVs yep. and doing that stuff. Well, the, the handle to the door had been right next to me. Yeah. We had done our checks and, and said, yeah, doors are closed and secure. I had looked down. Yep. I, I verified it was, it was down and locked. And somewhere in that, I had moved, I had stood up and, and I'm helping lane. I'm reaching over the patient to grab gear and eventually the handle popped up and now all of a sudden we're at 70 knots. Door comes open, ooh, it slides straight back and we were like, holy cow, everybody's okay. And, and it's, you know, it's out that fly the aircraft to number one. Are, are we still in the air? Yes. Are there any, anything going wrong? No. Can we land? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Then once we got down, it was like, all right, one of the wheels had popped off the track. And, but I, 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 I'm happy to admit that. And I remember phrase that. I'm not happy to admit it, but I will admit that I made a mistake. And let's learn from it and move on. And I think that's important for everybody absolutely, across man. the industry. Man up, lady well, up, whatever you want to say. And, and, and you, don't, you don't stop doing your job. You don't right. just, um, you, you know, because you still got a job to do. We still have uh, two and a half minutes to fly to land the aircraft. And yeah. so everybody still did their thing. And I, and I, <laughs> you know, on the surface, it's kind of funny. And you're like, oh, well, but it could have been catastrophic. But still, nevertheless, it was the, the point is you learn from it. You can debrief it and you go, hey, I made a mistake. How do we change and make our procedures better? Yeah. Uh, and so for anybody listening, you know, those are the kind of things that you can't really, um, um, work out on the table before you go fly because those are the unexpected yeah. and once they happen you're like oh my gosh i had no idea this could possibly happen yeah. and so those are the things you learn from so it's a really great story and i, and I appreciate uh, you letting me share that oh heck yeah. yeah 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 i i i am okay with with you know giving my faults and, and like you said i am human you are human we make mistakes it's it's not that it's it's not okay to make the mistakes, but it's not not okay to make a mistake. You have to make a mistake to learn. Yep. And then you have Absolutely. to make a mistake and then make the correction. 
if you can't admit that you made a mistake, now there's a different issue there. Yeah, because now, then someone's probably going to make that mistake again. And yeah. then you'll be kind of sitting in the wings going, oh, man, I probably should have mentioned that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that happened again? Well, why didn't yeah. you tell somebody the first time? Well, I was yeah. scared. I was this. No. Eat your humble pie. Yeah. All right. So now from there. So After that there, wonderful incident. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> but then, you know, to be honest, the majority of our time together really was, um, I think, built around uh, camaraderie, uh, teamwork. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, and I honestly think that the core group of people that we had in that program were truly dedicated to excellence. And um, I'm going to read something later in, in, the, in the show that um, talks about striving for excellence. And I think if, you know, I take a lot of pride in, in the work that we did there, because I do think that we really kind of every day we woke up and said, hey, we're, we, we need to be excellent. And how do we do that? And we did it together and uh, we trained well together and we did a lot of routine operations, but we always tried to do them the best we could. Yeah. Uh, we did a lot of, you know, hoisting. We did a lot of nighttime operations. We did a lot of flying, a lot of different hospitals. And um, I think it was really, really a fantastic highlight of my career uh, when we worked together in the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. for sure. Well, the team that we had down there, some of the greatest people yeah. um, that I just, I, I still, you know, communicate with a lot of them. And it was really, it was really quite fantastic, uh, yeah. to be honest with you. We definitely had uh, a very unique group. And just a, a even a unique niche in that in the world of helicopters and search and rescue where we were at because it was it was it was it yeah. was pretty groundbreaking of some pioneering it, it was some uh, some struggles you know with the FAA and, and regulatory uh, things and just technique and rules and this and but I think we did it really well and we did it very safely. Yeah. Oh, totally agree. And, and yeah. you know, this is one of the things that I really enjoyed working with you with because. For me, as a guy in the back of the aircraft, you know, I'm not going to speak for everybody out there, but I probably generalize and say the majority of us in the back don't sit there and start reading regulations that have to do with the guys up front. But I had an opportunity to sit down and work with you as you're digging through with a fine tooth comb every FAA rule and regulation as far as hoisting class A, B, C, D, how it was. And to sit there with you, Peter Kelly, Chris Galine, like all of you guys. And for me, that was an eye-opener. I was like, oh, wow, there's some yeah. good information here. And I was able to learn a lot from you guys. And for everybody else out there that's listening, dig into a manual. It's, it's boring. It's all boring can be. But it's amazing what you can learn and what you'll take out of it. Now, I, well, I think, and, go ahead. No, I, I think it's a valid point. Um, and once again, I slipped through the cracks. I'm not sure I how I got to where I was. Um, I, I always felt woefully unqualified, but when you're part of the brain trust, um, there's definitely power in numbers. And so um, I was never the smartest guy in the room, but when you surround your people or when you surround yourself with people who are extremely smart, um, you can really accomplish quite a bit. And so it, it really was a team effort um, from uh, it's something that I overlooked. Someone else is going to be like, hey, look, listen to what I read last night or something that they may have missed. I would say, hey, I picked this up the other day on, you know, in my research. 
<clears throat> and so it's not a one man or one woman show. It's really, you, you definitely need to surround yourself with a team of people who are dedicated to the success of the operation. And when you can do that, the, the sky's the limit. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, one of the things that I remember specifically, like talking to you and Peter Kelly about, and maybe you can touch on this even a little further, but it was as we were reading all the regulations, um, we were going back and forth between class A, B, C, and D. Now, class A is, for everybody that doesn't know, it's it's attached to the aircraft, is non-jettisable above the landing gear, right? Yeah. It's kind of like heli-skiing or mountain yeah. bikes to the exterior of the aircraft. Right. Or the old Nash helicopter where the where the patient was actually strapped outside the aircraft. Right. That's a class A external load, yeah. Perfect, right? Well, guess who is a class A load? I am as a hoist operator. I'm attached to the aircraft, non-jettisable. I'm above the landing gear. Hey, now all of a sudden you get into class B. That's your gear equipment that now gets hoisted down to jettisable and now below the landing gear. Now we're in a class B load because we're inserting gear and equipment. The other one that got twisted with that, and, and I maybe you can help me out with this, is class B. If you're a trained personnel on the, so you're part of the company or. <clears throat> yeah. So that's that's where the challenge came is right. the differentiation between or the line that was drawn between a class B load and a class D load. The uh, human class C, we don't really cardinal. need to talk about it. Class C. Well, is I, a, I I do want to talk about class C. I'll tell you. I'll interject real yeah. real quick here because as a class C load, you're attached to the ground. You're jettisonable and attached to the ground. Oh, what's that? Oh, that's right. A tagline. You now all of a sudden you have a tagline connect to your gear your person, your whatnot, you're actually a class C load versus a class B or D. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, but the difference between the class B and the class D is the class D is a live body who is paying for the service. And so they, um, they have certain rights and they have certain demands, like they have the right to not die. Yes. Uh, they have the right for the helicopter to not crash. Um, the class B, it could be a live body, but it's a, it's a employee of the company or it's an employee of the operations, such as you, uh, in, in your case, you are a class B load because you've kind of signed on to the fact that you're part of the operation. If the aircraft crashes, you don't get to sue us. Right. Um, <laughs> but a class D load is the customer and the customer says, I kind of want some insurance. I want some assurance of safety. And even if you lose an engine, uh, I want to know that I'm still going to be able to be picked up or set down on the ground. And so that's the biggest difference between class B human external cargo and class D human external cargo. Yeah. And the FAA regulates it very, um, <laughs> um, very uh, closely. And, and it can be quite yeah. complicated to navigate some of those rules. Right. Very much yeah. so. I remember specifically sending a, or, you know, helping watch us draft emails and stuff or letters that went to the FAA for clarification, which and they, they did get back to us. It might've been a little longer you, timeline, was, but you know, they got it, back it to us. It was definitely, you know, an interesting thing. And, and, and man, we learned so much. And then yeah. to come to find out that, I mean, we don't need to spend too much time on this, but basically at the end of the day, the FAA said, what you do of 12 miles offshore is not really our regular, you know, we can't regulate that. And we said, right. oh, oh, wait, are you serious? So <laughs> now we fall under ICAO rules. And so yeah. we kind of had this epiphany uh, of, wait, 
we we need to like relook the rules we're operating and um they were kind enough to say here's here's the deal you know we and, and so it changes right so ikeo has a little bit different um rules in place than the faa so man we learned so much and we became i think we exploited the capability um of the rules and of the capability of the aircraft and the crew uh to everyone's advantage right uh, and we did it safely and we did it you know to mitigate yeah. as much risk as possible so that was awesome that was such yes. a powerful three years for me as i learned so yeah. much about navigating that kind of stuff and working with some really talented people yeah which uh yeah. it's so it's kind of interesting that we're we talk about rules and regulations because i'm going to segue into the same thing that pat barber and i talked about is yes you were our pilot for when we went to the cruise ship and i'm dropping like bombs off to <laughs> yogurt well, bombs I, onto onto evan that- <laughs> that is that is one of the most memorable uh, events of my aviation career, and I just got tickled to death when I listened to that podcast with Pat. Uh, it brought back so many memories, and um, I was just secretly like filling in all the gaps for um, some of the details, and I'm just reliving that moment or those two days, and and that was really quite quite special because we did some pretty neat stuff there, right. um, and. Uh, the, the work that you guys did, I mean, I, I just hovered the helicopter and, and the other guys I flew with, you know, Chris and um, <clears throat> we, we just, to, to me, our, our work was a little bit insignificant, but you guys worked and um, <laughs> I, I, you're right. You did hundreds and hundreds of hoists and we just yeah. hovered a bunch yeah. um, and flew in between the ships and, you know, managed fuel and power and time and all that kind of stuff. And that was so special. Um, and the video that you made afterwards, I still, it's one of my favorite things. I play it and I listen to the music and I, <laughs> I kind of reminisce and tell people yeah. about it. I'm like, this is cool. And then <laughs> even <laughs> when I left the company, I got a shirt <laughs> with a picture from CNN on the front of it and our helicopter. Yes! <laughs> I still have the shadow box today. Like I, I keep that. Um, uh, and so those were really special times. And that, that event uh, really was kind of, was really cool. Cause it was unique. You know, that doesn't right. happen very often. A cruise ship just doesn't get disabled at sea. Yeah. Uh, and now and all of a sudden they're get, in tow. They yeah. Come all the way back. Yeah. And they have to get towed for nine days back to port. And, right. uh, you know, we're hauling, you know, melons and meat <laughs> and yogurt. And, <laughs> It was awesome. It was a, it was uh, so fun. I, I was so was. thankful that we were able to be there for that one. I wish that um, I wish you could have seen the cruise ship from the air because uh, we got to see it um, and Eben got to see it. Uh, you were on the Lana Rose, right? The supply uh, was, boat was the name of your supply boat. Uh, you were there the whole time, but from the air, the cruise ship, like all the passengers were spelling out things on the deck in their sheets, their bed sheets. They were spelling out help and uh, they were waving to us. And, you know, sure, we're dropping yogurt on the deck and all kind of stuff. But it was uh it was awesome. Some great photos from yeah. that, uh, those two, those two days. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun, a lot of fun. And it was, it was one of the other things that was really nice about that case. I don't know if Pat and I talked about it much, but the coordination between us and the Coast Guard. So the Coast Guard helicopter, the Blackhawk came out, or I'm sorry, the, the Jayhawk, they came out of um, Mobile, Alabama, and yep. they had a couple of qualified crews and they were like hoisting guys down to our boat 
to bring up, they had a generator they were going to get on the cruise ship. It's how they going to short haul that out. And, yeah, because you know, the ship had no power. They had no, no engine. Like, it was bizarre. It was yeah. such a bizarre Yeah, very situation. weird. Yeah, and I, I remember those guys coming down, um, which was something that was interesting between us and them because follow, go back to checklists and whatnot. As aviators, we want our nose into the wind and the boat just off, what, 10 degrees to the right or 15 degrees yeah. to the right. And it just so happened the, the supply vessel, when we put that degree based on the winds, the vessel into the, it was weird. That it was a terrible ride yeah. uh, and it made it actually hoisting harder to, based on the waves and the direction of the wind. Yeah. Um, so the Coast Guard came in and again, following their checklist, following the standard, I need you to put your nose in the, the vessel to this direction and we're going to go in. And then you came out and be like, Man, you guys are getting beat and shit down there. Hey, can you you want to turn your boat like you know this degree? We and they were like, oh, that would be great. And it was like, oh, that was so much easier. Yeah. So it was kind of funny. You, we got some great helmet cam footage from that one, and and yeah, that was just that was a great time. And I I, I like reminiscing about that particular yeah. operation. That was great. I think uh, one of my favorite parts of that whole thing was was when we were done. Again, talking about rules and regulations, fall back to that real quick, is we hit that 12 miles off the coast of the U.S. And um, all of, like, Coast Guard came out, Border Patrol, and all these guys, and they basically surround the cruise ship. And they were like, yeah, all right. Uh, well, uh, the news helicopters, too, started coming out. Yeah. And, but then they were like, okay, break off. You guys are done. We are no longer in need of your assistance. And we we're like, all right, yeah. cool. Peace out. Well, on the way out, I had all of our bags and equipment on deck with me. Well, it just so happened I came up with a load of melons and good sandwich meat. Thank you. Thank you, Khrushchev. We still had some stuff on the aircraft. So we ate some really good deli meat for the next few days. Uh, and then we picked up when we picked up Evan off the ship. Uh, he brought some uh, beach towels up with oh, him, yeah, like yeah. towel. So, dude, I I still have my uh, cruise ship towel. Uh, I still use it. Like, I take it with me in my, like, road bag. Like, if I'm going uh, on the road, yeah. I'll take it with me. Uh, and I still have that towel. Um, it's like, a, a you know, one that the cruise ship would offer you at the pool. Yeah. And so I yeah. keep that. I use that still to this day, man. You know what? We earned it that day. We earned a towel. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Oh my gosh, dude, that was so fun, man. Yeah, we had a, we had a good time. So absolutely. Um, and we we had a lot of other cases that we had in the Gulf of Mexico, and it, like I don't want to take away from all the other ones that we did, whether it's hoisting, landing. We just we had such a good crew mentality in the back of the aircraft and i know you want to touch on some of that so i'll, I'll kind of segue and lead into that and that is with with all our crew resource management that we we harp on everybody else and it, it doesn't get talked about enough and at the same time it gets talked about so much that people are like okay we've heard it a thousand times yeah but crew resource management you have to have That's a good crew you have to be able to talk to your pilot your pilot has to be able to talk to your crew so absolutely 
Absolutely. And it's a, it's kind of a become um, a religion of mine, if you would, in this business, uh, you can't under uh, value it or devalue it. You can't understate it. You can't um, ignore it. it. It really is. And, and we flew with a crew of five people. Uh, and if one single person on that crew was not in sync or didn't understand what was going on or, or wasn't in agreement, like it just, that's not a safe place to be. Uh, you have to have everyone on board when it comes uh, to crew resource management. Um, and I am a crew resource management instructor. I've been to uh, specialized training for it. I preach it everywhere I go. Uh, I, I apply it with my crews to this day. And you're absolutely right. If, if it's one of the most important uh, ingredients to a successful operation. Mm-hmm. And the human factor really is the key. Like helicopters are very reliable now. Uh, the equipment is very reliable. We have procedures in place that are very uh, proven and when they're safe and all this stuff is, is we, we rarely have an accident that's attributed to mechanical failure or right. uh, something like that, right? Uh, all the accident or 85% of the accidents today are attributed to the human factor. And if you don't respect that and you don't train for it and you don't um, practice uh, the prevention of an accident due to humans, then you're kind of destined to experience one. And uh, we do all this flight training. Oh, let me do an auto rotation in case my engine failures or engine fails. Let me do a run on landing in case my tail rotor fails. Let me do, and we do all this training uh, in case something mechanically goes wrong on the aircraft. Yep. But how much training does your organization really put into? Well, what do we do when one of the humans goes wrong? Yeah. Or what do we do when someone makes a mistake? Or what do we do when someone's tired? Or what do we do when someone forgets a checklist item? Or what do we do when someone, uh, you know, messes up on an instrument approach? Uh, and, and I think that um, it's so important that it, because of the, the the human factor that causes so uh, many of the accidents today that you really need to, or, or everyone needs to kind of take an approach to like, Hey, how do we prevent this? And how do we um, change our training program to incorporate the human failure? Just like we incorporate the engine failure or right. the tail rotor failure or the hoist failure. Like we do all that training, uh, but really how much time do we spend on, Hey, let's practice a human failure. Uh, let's practice uh, some of that. And so um, I, I think we did a pretty good job of that. Yes. Uh, and I also think that we experienced uh, some of the um, uh, failures of that. Like, I think that there were some crew members that um, didn't embrace that concept and it really showed. Yes. And, 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 it, and it could have been catastrophic. Fortunately, it wasn't. Uh, but I think there were some incidents where you realized like, hmm, not everyone's really on board with this idea of <laughs> crew resource management. Yeah. And fortunately yeah. we kind of, you know, moved those people around and, and uh, we, we, kind of handled that hopefully a uh, professional level but um i i think the the cost of uh, human failure is so high that you really have to um you really have to approach it with a lot of a lot of respect so yeah. that, that's super important to me i i i'm contemplating uh, you know starting my own podcast that's crm centric uh and, and i like it things. so you know as, as i guess yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So I'm, I'm kind of slowly putting that together. I've been kind of working on that for a year, but lots of things happened over the past year that yeah. 
I'm going to put that on hold, but I think it's so important. Uh, I've been doing a lot of reading on CRM. I do a lot of teaching on CRM. And um, I think that um, I, I don't think it's emphasized enough in these crew type operations. Yeah. And so uh, some of the organizations that do embrace it, like, uh, like you and what you do and the company that you, the companies that you've worked for, uh, like your sponsor, SR3, I think some of the, I, I think some of those, uh, organizations really do get it and they get it right. And so I think that's super important yeah. uh, in this type of business. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm on board with you. I, I preach it, preach it, preach it, preach it. Uh, I literally like my briefing every day at work. Like when I'm pulling a shift at work, um, it's me, a paramedic and a nurse, and that's our crew on our aircraft. And we're flying single pilot IFR. And so when I'm doing my crew briefing in the morning or whenever we do shift change, I, 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 I spend a lot of time on CRM and I tell them things like, you know, we're all in this together. There's no such thing as your side of the aircraft is getting ready to crash. Like that doesn't exist, you know? And what a I good tell point them, that is. I, I might steal that from you. Yeah. And, and I tell them, I was like, look, if, if it's important enough to think about, it's probably important enough to say. Yeah. And if you two are in the back of the aircraft mouthing to each other, what are we doing? You should probably ask the pilot, what are we doing? Like, bring this up in conversation. If, if the aircraft is heading in a direction that you don't know, then yeah. you should probably say something. Yeah. If you're concerned about the fact that you can't see the ground anymore, you should say something. Yeah. If you're concerned about the fact that your pilot hasn't spoken in seven minutes, you should probably say something. <laughs> and um, I'm a very vocal person in the aircraft. I talk a lot and I say a lot of things. And sometimes people get annoyed with it. I'm like, but you know what? You're never going to wonder what's going through my mind because right. I'm going to make it come out of my mouth. And I, 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 I we, we talk a lot about a lot about it. I'm like, this is super important. Like we're all in this together and, and any decision that we're going to make in the aircraft needs to be made, you know, as a crew uh, and everyone gets a vote and some input. Uh, and, and when those voices and opinions are valued and uh, respected, then everyone's empowered. And if you can, if you can get your crew uh, to feel empowered, then you've got a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I I'll throw one more thing in there to, to piggyback off that is even if you disagree with something. So let's say we have a crew of five people and I do, I don't agree with what the four have decided. Like, Hey, did we think this is the best? I'm like, I, well, I, I don't think that my job at that moment in time is to embrace what the crew has decided that is the safest practice. And we work together to make it happen. If, yeah. There is somebody that says, absolutely not. I'm not going flying. Then we all don't go flying. And I've done that. Yeah. So Because at the end of the day, I'd rather be sitting on the ground wishing I was up there than being up there wishing I was on the ground. Right. And so if we lost a revenue flight or we lost an opportunity to go fly because someone wasn't comfortable, I would rather turn that into a training opportunity or a discussion to say, you know what? You know, and, and even if we educate the entire crew and go, here's why we could have gone flying tonight. And then the crew member or whoever says, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. And then the next night they are on board and they go fly. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they might expose something that you're like, oh, my gosh, I totally missed that. Wow. Thank you for bringing that to my um, to my um, uh, attention. And I'm glad we didn't go fly. Right. And it's just we, we can't do this alone, man. I mean, yeah, sure. There's a lot of like 
jet jocks out there that are flying all by themselves. But I, I think yeah. there's probably flights where they wish they had someone to talk to. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yep. I, I'll bring up one more example of uh, good, good and bad um, CRM in general. And one of them is I, I was not on this flight, so I, I got debriefed. So forgive me, you'll have to, you know, kind of put the pieces together. But, you know, guys went out, they went hoist training. And at one point or another, the medic had given an abort signal of a slashing motion across his throat. That was our abort hand signal at the time. Well, he had never announced it over ICS. Nobody else knew that there was an abort signal given other than the hoist operator. Well, the hoist operator also did not mention it over ICS and continued to hoist because the other guy on the hoist was okay. And he was like, oh no. So just that guy wants to be done. No, no, no. What the communication was when they got back to debrief was, hey, I was uncomfortable with everything going on. I gave you an abort signal and you continued on. Well, sir, when you give an abort signal or you want to change something in the middle of the flight, announce it so everybody has input and then talk about it amongst the crew. Put the aircraft into a safe position, whether that's back into a rest position, a, a hover away from all obstacles, or in a pattern, but have an opportunity to talk amongst each other and then yeah. come to a clue decision. It's so important. It, it, it really is. And <clears throat> it's, I, I totally agree. Uh, and there is a difference between um, U.S. military special operations going after bin Laden or doing a hostage rescue yeah. uh, and a commercial operation where um, you're, uh, you're, you're, you're flying for hire or you're even in a search and rescue. And so in the military operation, there, there may not be time for question. You just go and you do, right? And then there's right. casualties of war, right? So that's different. But in this particular case, uh, there is no reason if someone on the crew or on the ground or some safety or some first responder on the radio says abort or go around or I don't like this or stop. Like yeah. there's no reason to not stop, even right. if everyone else thinks it's perfectly safe to go. Right. And so I'm totally on board with that. And if you, the first time you don't respect that command, you've totally lost all faith in your crew and the people on the ground. So even if I think I'm making the most beautiful approach in the world and there's no dust and there's no hazards and I'm landing in a 100 acre football field with <laughs> sod and it's perfectly level in the middle of the daytime and birds are tweeting and music's playing in my ear and, uh, and someone says, go around. If I continue my approach, I have just ruined a lot of uh, things that have taken a long time to build. So I go around and I, in the downwind or in my traffic pattern, I say, Hey, what did you see that I didn't see? Cause it all looked perfect to me. And they'll say, Oh, well, I, um, I caught my gear on the door handle and I thought the door was going to come <laughs> uh, Or they say, I, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable. <laughs> I wasn't comfortable with that approach. And yeah. there's no reason not to honor that, um, that interjection yeah. and i think it's super important and, and if you go into this business not being able to swallow that pill or accept that um then you, you know you're kind of in the wrong business and so in your example 
or in, or in the example you brought up, if you're, everyone's at the hover and the, everyone's working and then someone, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's the rescue yeah. swimmer, if it's the specialist, or if it's guy on the, 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 the platform, if someone gives an abort signal, then you're right. Everything stops. Yeah. You just stop. And you put, like you said, put the aircraft in a safe position, whether that's a hover, a stabilized hover or a rest position, or you've gone around and you're in a traffic pattern or in an overhead orbit and you talk about it and you figure out what went wrong. And if someone goes, Oh, my mistake, nothing was wrong. Let's try it again. So yeah. what you go try it again. And yeah. you pat that person on the back for not being afraid to call an abort. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. if you don't have that culture and if you don't have that, um, um, uh, that, that culture in your organization, then you're, you're, you're not doing, you're not doing something right. No. Everyone in your company, everyone in your organization should be comfortable doing that. And you should train that way. Sometimes yeah. when I'm training, when I was training students for the army, they would be on a really good approach. They'd be going just fine. And I would just call go around to see what they would do to see how they would react to it. And sometimes they would be like, what? I'm, this is, I'm going to continue to land. And I'd say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why someone called abort or called a go around. You should probably react to it. Yeah. Uh, and you should then talk about why they called that because it could be something you're not perfect there's a reason it's yeah. it, this is a multi this is a crew served weapon you know yeah uh, and so it's really really super important that's a really good example yeah super super important i i, I look forward to listening to your podcast next all right so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. Man, we'll see we'll see <laughs> yeah crew resource management can't emphasize it enough everybody out there Stay with the crucial resource management. Don't be afraid to speak up. And at the same time, don't be afraid to listen. Yeah. So. I mean, there, there is a pilot in command on board the helicopter or yeah. airplane or whatever crew weapon you're or crew piece of equipment you're operating. Uh, but at the end of the day, everyone gets a vote. You know, everyone gets an input and everyone's a uh, critical member to that uh, decision making team. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. Man, yeah. Thanks for thanks for sharing on touching on all that. That's that's great advice great advice yeah. um all right so I'm, I'm gonna move on a little bit because in this um you actually so you and i have kind of chatted offline a little bit but you would like yeah. to uh bring up a little something for everybody out there and all the first responders so my friend yeah. the floor is yours <laughs> okay i appreciate that uh jason um and and i i, I love your podcast and i love the, the focus that it has and, and I really consider myself a part of that community. I've worked with some really amazing people. Uh, but as my career has gone on, I've, uh, I've been exposed to more than just search and rescue. Uh, from this um, perspective, from the helicopter perspective or from the military's perspective, I've kind of been exposed more to um, first responders in general. And um, anybody that is out there standing watch or uh, serving uh, for a community, whether it's as a volunteer firefighter or a volunteer EMT or a paramedic or an air ambulance crew member or um, Coast Guard search and rescue, whatever the case may be, anybody that's standing watch to go help somebody else in need uh, is kind of lumped into the same boat Agreed. in this, in this case. Uh, you have found a way to do something that's bigger than yourself and contribute uh, to society or to uh, provide a need that somebody else may have 
hopefully not, but it, when someone else is in need, you have found a way to answer that call. And hundreds of thousands of people do that on a regular basis across the United States. And uh, this hits particularly close to home uh, for several reasons. Um, my family and I moved to Whidbey Island, Washington, about a year ago. And I was good friends with a buddy of mine uh, who lived on the island as well. He's a helicopter pilot, but he's also a firefighter. And uh, he said, hey, you and your wife should join the volunteer fire department uh, here in, um, in our community. And I said, why would we want to do that? I don't have any interest in being a firefighter. Um, and he said, well, uh, the community is served by volunteers and it could be you coming to my house and it could be me coming to your house uh, when the need uh, arises. And I was like, hmm, okay, well, fair enough. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, I like you. And so if your house was on fire, yeah, I would respond. So that's cool. And if my house was on fire, that'd be great if you responded. So, okay, so let me look into that. Do I owe and you so money? Wife, That's all. I got, I got to ask that question. Do I owe you money? Because if I do, yeah. my friend. <laughs> and so my wife immediately uh, enrolled in the EMT Academy and became an EMT volunteer for our local fire department. Very nice. And I said, all right, sure, I'll do fire. You know, it'll help keep me young. Um, maybe it'll keep me in shape. You know, it's something to, so, something to do, right? I'm, it's totally out of my league. I have no idea about firefighting. I don't know what I'm doing. So I enrolled in the fire academy. Um, but at the same time, we were expecting a child. And um, our, uh, we were planning uh, a home birth. Uh, and everything was great. It was all healthy. Everything, all, our pregnancy was going great. And so we were going to have our child at home. Um, and he was due in February. And um, we had a midwife and a midwife's assistant. And so it was great. Labor started. Everything was wonderful. And um, when he was born, uh, he wasn't breathing. And um, it was really a, a, a surreal moment. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm asking him, like, why isn't he crying? Like, what's going on? Why, uh, why is the midwife and her assistant starting CPR on my baby? Um, why is he that color? Uh, why is there no noise? Like, what's, this is odd. This is just totally taking me out of my element. And the midwife asked me to call 911. And um, in that moment, I'm like, what the, what, what's going on? Why am I calling 911 for the birth of my child? And um, not to get emotional or, or really deep into it, I, I called 911. And I'm speaking to the dispatcher and I'm telling the dispatcher that my wife just had a child and uh, it's not breathing. And the midwife has started um, CPR. And the dispatcher says, okay, hold on the line for a second. And I knew what she was doing. I used to be a 911 dispatcher and, and the dispatcher was toning out uh, the people um, that were gonna come to our house. And uh, she came back on the line and said, okay, so um, help us on the way. Um, you can hang up with me as soon as the first responder gets there. And so a sheriff, a sheriff's deputy pulled up probably within 30 seconds of, of the phone call and he came in the front door and I hung up with the dispatcher. And so the deputy said, hi, you know, we know we're here. As soon as he rolled up, uh, we had a fire engine roll up. We had two ambulances roll up. We had uh, medical response vehicles roll up. Uh, we had uh, more than a dozen people walk in our front door within about two minutes of me calling 911. 
And about 10 of those people we knew personally because we were volunteers uh, with the department. And they uh, took over our house. They took over uh, the care of my wife. They took over the care of our child who was now three minutes old, <laughs> four minutes old. Uh, and it changed our lives forever. Um, they uh, revived our son. They uh, intubated him. They got him breathing again. They, uh, well, they were breathing for him, but they got his heartbeat back up. They used an AED. I'd never seen an AED so small. I didn't know they made one for <laughs> a newborn. Uh, but I'm watching this happen in my kitchen. And uh, it was really surreal. My wife was being cared for by some other paramedics and EMTs. And so she was being taken care of. And um, the, I remember them saying, we've got a heartbeat again. Um, and uh, we're going to continue breathing and make sure the helicopter is on the way. And that perked my ears up because that's my life, right? I said, oh, helicopter, wait a minute. This is my helicopter. This is the company that I work for. And the pilot flying this helicopter probably works for me. Wow. Uh, and so we um, loaded up into an ambulance and we drove to a local, the nearest landing zone and the helicopter landed. And I met the pilot and the nurse and the paramedic that I were, have worked for worked with for the past year and a half and they recognized me and they realized oh my gosh we're taking Jean's child on the helicopter and so you know I'm, I'm kind of proud that you know my son had a helicopter ride within the first you know, few minutes of his life um, and I got to ride along with him but we went to the trauma center uh, and we were met by, um, by a neopeds team uh, that specialized in that kind of emergency and we were treated and then we were taken to uh, Seattle Children's Hospital by a specialized transport. And we got um, um, to spend some time with our son uh, from what would have been a complete tragedy to, um, to what you know, was uh, turned into a week of life. And um, our son ended up passing away a week after he was born. Uh, but um, we did what we could to find the good in all of that. And most of the good was the first responders that helped rescue our child, if, if you want to put it in those terms. Yeah. Uh, we would have never gotten a week uh, with him had it not been for people who were standing watch, who were on duty, who um, may not have heard a SAR alarm, but they heard a pager go yeah. off they heard tones go out they said hey this address needs help and here's what they need and they did so without due regard for their own comfort or their own safety and they came in our front door and they took care of business and um i was in total awe that day um by their performance and their professionalism their knowledge and their ability to uh, keep someone alive not just someone but an infant uh, a newborn, a uh, human that was less than 10 minutes old, alive um, with such skill and uh, aptitude that I was completely humbled uh, by that. And that changed our lives forever. Um, and so it changed our opinion of, or not our opinion, I mean, you know, we always think highly of first responders, but it changed our perspective for sure.
And it kind of solidified the fact that what we're doing and what we do and what you do and what people in this community do for others is not to ever be devalued or uh, seen as insignificant um, because you may go a whole career without ever, oh, I've never saved a life or I've never done anything. So I don't have a fancy SAR case or I don't have a fancy um, mission. I don't have a lot of award, blah, blah, blah. But you may have that one call, that one tone, that one SAR alarm that changes somebody's life forever. And uh, it really changed ours. Um, and now uh, we are 100% dedicated to this work and this lifestyle and the support of this family that we have uh, in the emergency response community, in the first responders uh, group in general, that, um, you know, when the, when the tones go out, uh, it, it may suck, it may not be fun, uh, but you're probably going to go help someone that's probably having the worst day of their life. Right. And if you can provide some comfort, if you can provide some uh, some help, some assistance that gives them just another minute of life, um, that's important to them. And it was important to us. And I think that um, that is notable and worthy of mention uh, that anybody listening to this podcast should, um, you know, uh, not um, put on a put on a scale like, oh, I'm not a rescue swimmer. I've never saved someone, plucked someone from the Bering Sea, or I've never um, successfully done CPR and saved someone's life, you know, but uh, regardless of the work you do as a first responder, you are a rescuer and you are, uh, you, you answer that call uh, when someone needs help. And I think that that's uh, so incredibly important that doing something bigger than yourself uh, really is, is kind of what makes uh, this lifestyle and this uh, career uh, so important and so valuable. And, and I think that's just worthy uh, of discussing and mentioning and, and talking about. Wow. Um, <clears throat> and the, the, the last thing I'm going <clears> to <throat> mention is we had a memorial uh, for our son uh, at our home and uh, we invited everyone who, you know, all of our family and friends were there and all of our first responder uh, family and our fire department and EMS family uh, came uh, to the memorial. And um, I had, <laughs> about the time our son was born, I had just finished reading a book um, about John Boyd. And do you know who John Boyd is? I do not know. <clears throat> I didn't either, uh, but someone introduced me to him. He, he was an Air Force fighter pilot who kind of uh, changed the way the Air Force uh, fought wars, basically. He, he changed the Air Force. <clears throat> and he did so uh, kind of controversially. He wasn't really liked by his superiors because he was quite abrasive. Uh, and he, and he <laughs> spoke his opinion and he said, I think what you guys are doing is messed up and here's how to do it the right way. And he got into a lot of trouble, uh, because of it, uh, but he's kind of famous, uh, for many things, but one of the things he's famous for is, um, his mentorship to, uh, younger air force officers, right? When he worked at the Pentagon, he had a guy come work for him and, he basically pulled him aside and he was kind of gruff and, and, and rough. And he, 
they called him Tiger. And he said, hey, Tiger, let me tell you something. You're, at some point in your career, you're going to come to a fork in the road. And that fork is going to be two directions that you can go. You can choose to be somebody and, or you can choose to do something. He said, if you choose to be someone, uh, you're going to get promoted. You're going to get great assignments. Uh, you're going to um, have a lot of fame and fortune. He goes, but you're going to have to sacrifice some values and you're probably going to lose some friends along the way. Uh, but you'll be somebody important. He said, or you can choose to do something, right? He said, you can go that direction and you can do something. If you do something, you will not be popular. You'll probably not be liked by some of your superiors. You probably won't get uh, the fancy assignments and you may not get promoted. He said, but you'll be true to yourself. You'll be true to your values and you'll do something that changes the course of history, the course of uh, your organization for the better. You'll change someone's life. He said, so to be someone or to do something, you're going to have to choose at some point in your career. And that struck home with me really, really like hard. Yeah. And I realized that there's been times in my career where I've like, you know, I want to be someone. I want to get promoted. I want to be like, you know, uh, fancy and, and, and whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, it's really important that you choose to do something. And so at our memorial for our son, we, we put that challenge out there to all our first responders. And I said, first of all, you, you've already chosen to do something by becoming a first responder. And our son, uh, when he died, uh, we, he, he donated uh, his organs to research and to um, other infants that needed uh, organs. And so in his own way, he chose to do something. I mean, we chose it for him, but uh, he did something, right, to change yeah. the world, to change people, to change us. And we had a bunch of stickers made. His name was Daniel. And we had a bunch of stickers made that said, what would Danny do? And it's uh, his middle name was Atlas. So it's a picture of, uh, of Atlas kind of holding up the globe on his shoulders and, and the weight of the world bearing down on him. And we kind of find that to be quite apropos uh, of, of our position today. You know, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow that changes the world? How are you going to uh, make a difference uh, for someone? And in this light, uh, we have uh, fully embraced uh, the uh, first responder uh, call, the, the, the jobs that, that people that are standing watch and on the wall do on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and we choose to do something. And so for anybody that's listening, uh, you, you've got a choice. You, you, have, um, you can go be someone or you can do something. And the people um, that you surround yourself with and the, the Jason yourself and the people you've had on this podcast and uh, they they've chosen to do something right. Uh, and it's not for personal fame or fortune. It's so that um, others uh, have uh, some other some better quality of life, whether it's so that others may live so that others may walk again so that others may breathe tomorrow uh, so that others may have a house that didn't completely burn down um, that's the, the the do that you have a choice uh, to make and for us it has really changed our life um, 
we miss our son. We wish he was alive, but uh, we know that uh, the people that were involved that day uh, did something. And what they did was they put our son in, in, in good hands that allowed us to spend a week with him. Uh, otherwise, he would have never made it uh, from the first minute of his birth. Wow. And so um, I, I think that's super important. To I love your podcast. I love the concept of it. Um, I love the guests that you've had on. Um, and, in, in, and from a big perspective, it really um, can speak to uh, and just our appreciation for any first responder that works on the front line, that works in emergency services, that works in military special operations, military search and rescue, Coast Guard search and rescue, ambulance, air ambulance, EMS, firefighting, paramedics, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that is really um, kind of a special calling in, in life. And, and for those people out there that are doing that, we, we thank you from the bottom of our heart. Uh, and Jason, I appreciate you and, and what you're promoting here thank you. Uh, and the opportunity to share a little bit of our story uh, with you and a, an opportunity to once again, slip through the cracks and be on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> There's no slipping through the crack here, my friend. <laughs> this is like a full on charge into your house and be like, Hey, hey let's do this. So, so uh, it's really, it's, it's a special uh, experience, buddy. And, and um, I, I consider you an extremely close friend uh, and I, I appreciate you. the opportunity to be here and the conversation Um and I look forward to the day that we cross paths again and get a chat and share a hug and a drink. Absolutely. Um, so that's really about uh, it. Whatever, you know, if you've got any other questions for me, I'm happy to answer them. No, I, I don't. Um, I'll tell you, I, one, thank you for, for sharing those stories, uh, especially to, to go down that memory lane and to be able to open up, to, to share it with so many that are listening. So thank you. Appreciate that. Um, You're welcome. And thank you for the, the you know, announcer talking about all the EMS, everybody out there that's doing this job from the guy that's driving the ambulance to the guy that's in the air and everybody in between. So it's, there's a lot. Yeah, I'm just, you know. I was just humbled and like in awe of their ability, capability, their tenacity. Um, it just, blows me away even when we worked together from the front of the aircraft i found my job to be easy but when i turned around and looked over my shoulder i'm like holy crap i could never do that job that you guys are doing in the back so it's uh, I, i'm in complete I've, you have my complete respect so well thank you thank you hey you have mine as well i mean i've learned a ton from you so I, it goes both ways for sure so thanks thank buddy but, man i Gene, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with us. It's of course such a pleasure to talk to you. Such a pleasure to have you on. Of course. Let me know whenever you get another one. Give me a call. We'll get you on again. All right. <laughs> yeah, for sure, man. Awesome. For sure. It's been awesome. I'm so glad we, we finally got together. Me too. Me too. I, I look forward to our drink and maybe a stogie and maybe a night out. And this time you'll be Michael Phelps' sparring spar partner. <laughs> oh, you want to hear the story about the mustache? I absolutely do. <laughs> so, um, 
Uh, so, okay, real quick, and then I'll be done. Uh, normally, I like to wear a full beard, right? Uh, and I've had some pretty epic beards, uh, like just nice, really just as soon as I got out of the military, I stopped shaving. Um, but um, when I when I started volunteering for the fire department, uh, they introduced me to the SCBA, right? And the mask that goes with the SCBA. And they said, oh, you have to create a good seal. Like, and you can't get a good seal with that beard. And I was like, what? <laughs> and they said, yeah, you're going to have to shave that off. So I shaved my beard for fire academy. And uh, sure enough, you get a good seal of the face mask when you, know, when you got nice, clean skin. And I uh, finished fire academy and that was cool. And so I kind of let it start growing again. But then I started standing some duty. And we actually went and fought a fire a few weeks ago. And one of the guys on the fire was like, oh, I'm looking a little scruffy there. How does your mask seal up? And I was like, oh, it seals just fine. But then um, later I realized I'm like, yeah, the longer this beard hair gets, it's not going to seal so well. So, uh, you know, I kind of owe it to myself and my family and everyone else to have a good seal on my face mask if I'm breathing <laughs> on air. And um, so we had a drill a fire department drill the other night and everyone was going to be there. The chiefs were going to be there. And I was like, I should probably shave, you know, it's probably the right thing to do because I don't want to be called out. So I, I started shaving and uh, I was like, you know what? I, like life's too short. Let me see if I can get one of those good firefighter mustaches. Right. Because let me see how much facial hair I can have and still get a good seal oh, you know, with my mask. <laughs> So I, so I'm in the bathroom, kind of shaving it up, right? And I'm like, okay, I think this is, I think this is good. And um, uh, so I come out of the bathroom. Of course, my wife's like, oh, that's terrible. Don't do that ever again. And uh, my daughter was like, who are you? Like, what, what's going on? This is, and of course, you get all the jokes and everyone's commenting on it, but uh, it's still just something fun to do. Um, so I can still put on a good you know, SCBA face mask and it still works, but I still have a little bit of it's beautiful. Like, it's a little <laughs> I don't know how long I don't know how long I'm gonna keep it, but anyway, it was fun, right? It's not uh, I'm not trying to win any beauty contests, that's for sure. You might, you might you you know what? I just put your name in the hat and see what happens. If you yeah, if you look at my Facebook, I actually, you know, me and Susie have a really good picture. Um on there we took a photo the other night at drill and so it's like i'm in like our bunker gear she's in her bunker gear and uh i've got the full-on firefighter mustache yes. going on so i love it nice. <laughs> yeah, so, anyway that's it buddy dude i love it man gene thank you so much for coming on dude i can't thank you enough this has been an absolute pleasure absolutely so. jason it's, it's been great man thank you for having me anytime anytime and with that ladies and gentlemen we are out of here. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute and like my daughters like to tell me, like and subscribe. Oh yeah. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story that they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you as a guest. Or if you have any questions about any of the rescues or anything else that we talk about here on this podcast, send me an email, therealrescue at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q at gmail.com. You can also check us out on our Facebook and Instagram page at The Real Rescue. That's at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. 
I also want to give a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember that when that SAR alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard. <laughs>